0: Very good morning to you. Richard Watts with you here for another edition of Smart Arts before I tell you what's on the show today and uh, even before I thank the Breakfasters, there's someone more important to thank and that's you and everyone else who subscribed to Triple R during our annual Radiothon. We're painting the town Triple R this year uh, so to all those people who called up and subscribed online during the last three hours uh, of Smart Arts last week, huge thanks and indeed to everybody who subscribed you have a uh, time yet to pay up your subscription if you just pledged a subscription because you didn't have the money, uh, and oh, I know that feeling far too well. Um, So you've got until 5pm on Wednesday the 23rd of September to subscribe and be in the running for all of the Triple R prizes as part of Radiothon. The artist prizes, the band prizes, the DJ prizes, the extra special prizes, and everything else. Also, of course, big thanks to the Breakfasters for their show this morning. Uh, And on today's show, Bernard Callio will join us in just a couple of minutes' time to talk comic books. We're going to talk about the movie Holding the Man, which is in cinemas today. I've caught up with uh, writer Tommy Murphy and director Neil Armfield a couple of weeks ago. I'll be playing that interview today. Regular segment presenter Joe Lloyd, who's normally dancing on the radio with us every fortnight, instead comes in this morning to be a guest. I'm interviewing her about her new work, Confusion for Three, which uh, opened last night at Arts House in North Melbourne. We're also going to find out about the Ballarat International Photo Biennale, the Lawn Arts Festival, some site-specific work from Field Theory, and we're presenting a series of works uh, under the banner Sight is Set, and uh, on the dance front also, we'll be catching up with choreographer Francis Rings from Bangara to talk about their latest work, Lore, that's L-O-R-E not L-A-W and at 11.30 we'll find out about uh, a production currently playing at Art Centre Melbourne called The Weir, and we'll be chatting with director Sam Strong and actor Nadine Garner about that one
1: 3 triple R
0: Every month around this time, uh, although this time seems to shift sporadically and <laughs> chaotically, but hey, that's life, we catch up with Bernard Calleo uh, to talk comic books in a segment we like to call Drawn Out. Good morning, Bernard. Richard Watts, hello. You've been a busy man. I have,
2: I have. Good. You know, it's Writers Week, it's Writers Festival, there's a ton of stuff on and, you know, just tr- getting, the, getting the comic uh, book thread through those other books is uh, is my mission.
0: And it's a mission you're succeeding in because I know you have a ridiculously busy day coming up, so I'm glad you could squeeze in a visit to the station, but you've also been busy in other
2: reasons, because you've set up a new imprint to indeed, pu- indeed, translate and publish comic books. Pa- translate and publish, translate and publish. So, 12 Panels Press, which is a new uh, comic book publishing outfit, uh, which is me, Erica Wagner and Elizabeth McFarlane, we've set that up together because we have identified, we have wanted, we have desired to to have a voice, a place, a forum for uh, books that celebrate the bridge between Australian comics culture and other comics cultures. And our first book, which is being launched tonight at Readings Bookshop in Carlton uh, at uh, 6.30, come along, um, is The Salty River by Jan Bauer. Uh, originally Der Salzige Fluss, The Salty River, and uh, published last year in German, published this year. In fact, published tonight uh, in English by us, so it's a it's a remarkable. Of course, I would say that, but I think it's a beautiful book because Jan uh, and, and we publish we've chosen to publish it, but this book because in it Jan tells the story and, and Richard's sniffing the book right now. It's got that new print smell; uh-huh, mm. it's fresh out of the box. Um, uh, it's about him coming over and walking the Lara Pinta Trail in the West Macdonald Ranges, and so that's up in Northern Territory. So. Jan, who has... Quite an association with Australia. He's been here many times and done many walks here. In fact, he was at the prom yesterday. He um, can't keep him off the off, off, off the nature bits. Uh, we just managed to drag him into town for tonight's launch, and then he then he's then he's, he's off again. again.
3: Now, you and
0: I have talked a little bit about this book already on the show, and I commented on the in terms of the the layout of the panels and the artwork that there's these beautiful, uh, almost photographically rendered images of the landscape, and then much more simply drawn. pieces Within them, which is a beautiful contrast, and it's always fascinating to see the Australian landscape through the eyes of someone who's not native to Australia. The, the way they're struck by the the weathered folds of ancient rock, or the, the the particular quality of the light, and so forth, and that's certainly something he captures here. But Absol- yep, sorry, go on. Uh, to what fascinates me as much as his writing and drawing is why you've decided mm. to set up an imprint for Australian comic for for translations Mm. of comic books how many what sort of risks are involved
2: Considerable. <laughs> it's madness. It's, 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 it's very silly. But I suppose uh, the risk, I suppose, you know, is, of course, losing money and uh, and time and, and energy, those sorts of things. But I suppose for each of Erica and Elizabeth and I, uh, we, um, we all love comics and we love book comics, which is what I would call this. You know, it's a graphic novel. It's a book comic. It's a thing with a spine. And in the pages and in the printing and in the binding, what we're seeking to do is to celebrate this literary form, this art form, this comics thing, uh, and to give it uh, the um, the beautiful presentation, the, the the respect, I suppose, that we feel that comics can really offer to a, an enormous range of readers, um, and uh, yeah, our our. our our mission really is to get this conversation going between Australian comics culture and international comics cultures and readers here and um, readers overseas. So, our mission would eventually would be to publishing, be publishing Australian graphic novels as well. Translated. To- into German, French, Japanese. Exactly yeah. so. Because because of course our, it's, this is a niche um, uh, publishing uh, undertaking and comics are a small part of uh, Australia's publishing culture but in other places in the world they're enormous. They're apart. incredibly mainstream. Very in, mainstream. In,
0: in, certainly in Japan uh, in France to a much greater degree than they are in Australia or, or even the USA where which many of us think of the home of comic yeah. books. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah exactly and so our, our We're really wanting to make books that make that, again, that I suppose I keep coming back to that word, the bridge, the conversation, because we know that there's works that we would like Australian readers, reader readers, people who just browse bookshops to be reading. Um, And we know that there are authors here that, (coughs) pardon me, that we would like to be introducing to an international um, readership Yes. And, and, you know, apart from all that, we think the comics can save the world, but that's, you know, another <laughs> conversation. So you're launching The Salty River
0: tonight and indeed launching 12 panels press tonight indeed. at Readings in Carlton at
2: 6.30pm. It's a free event. Anyone can attend. Anyone come come along. Have a drink. We'll give you a drink, but you need to buy the book.
0: Yeah. Uh, and uh, there will be a conversation happening there as well. There will. They will.
2: What, what exactly is happening tonight? So we'll be we're uh, having uh, – I'll be talking uh, so you'll hear this voice again, but you will also hear from Gabriel Urban from the Goethe, Institute, who really helped get this book to fruition, and we'll also hear and actually watch uh, Jan Bauer, the author from Hamburg. He will be presenting, doing a live reading of the comics. How do you read a comic in public? Well, we're going to do it, and you're going to see it. You're going to see not the whole book, but you, you know, like any reading, you'll get a you get a taster there uh, on, a, on, a, on a screen. And then tomorrow night, as part of the Writers Festival, Jan and a local comic bookmaker, Josh Santospirito, are in conversation at the Wheeler. Centre at seven o'clock about drawing the outback, which is what that uh, session, that panel is called. What a fantastic undertaking! It, it, it's, oh, it's, it's very it's, exciting. It is very exciting. I'm, 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 I'm yeah, just a, a, a full. Uh, I'm, 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 f- I'm fizzing. I'm fizzing with uh, with 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 this under with this project. So it's very, very good. Should I talk about something else before we go? I reckon we've got a couple of extra minutes. That's great. That's great. I'd also like to talk up. So that's that. That's that's the, the Salty River. Come along tonight. The other thing I'd like to mention, which is a really great um, uh, project uh, with comics and Australian comics, is the caravanofcomics.com um website. So caravanofcomics.com. .com. com. That's right. And this has been set up by Andrew Fulton, a great local cartoonist. Uh, but what it does is it gives you free digital giveaways of uh, local comic book artists. Uh, every week there's a new comic book artist up there and you can download their, uh, their book as a PDF, an EPUB, a CBS, whatever that is, and, or a Kindle version, because uh, Andrew knows about all these things. The one at the moment is uh, Neil Blandon, an absolute pillar of uh, of um, Melbourne comic book making, very funny, very dark cartoonist. Uh, the one before that, which is still available for download, I think, is a young cartoonist, Chris Gooch, with his horror, beautiful horror comic called Hidden. Um, and there is, if you just trail through that website, you get a, 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 a litany, a, 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 a canon of great comic book uh, makers: Nicky Minus, Michael Fakara, Sam Emery. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, like a checklist, really. So really worth looking at caravanofcomics.com for... Just seeing what's happening in comics it's really live and you get to download that book
0: for free and uh, whether it, uh, and particularly for people who are Kindle readers, for example, uh, I think that will be quite exciting because uh, a lot of the independent comics, as we know they're, they're artifacts they're hand yes, drawn uh, or sometimes computer drawn, but then they're, they're printed and yes. published and, and photocopied or whatever so they're, they're small and intimate and passed around yes uh, so making them available as PDFs or indeed for the Kindle. Great initiative. So, yes, caravanofcomics.com. Check it out. It's all very exciting. Oh, it's a great world. Bernard, uh, I'm going to let you go because I know you have to get off to uh, Federation Square by 10am. I'm
2: going to get on my bike. Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for joining us. Richard. Bye.
0: Uh, Bernard Calio will join us again in a month's time.
2: Triple R. Not for
4: everyone. For anyone.
0: You've probably heard me talking a bit about Holding the Man over the last couple of weeks. It's a film that I've been anticipating since 1995, which is when... Tim Conagrave's posthumous memoir was published. Now, Conagrave was an actor, um, a playwright and an activist. And the the book is about the great love of his life, John Calleo. So in many ways, it's uh, the book is an act of forgiveness, uh, uh, an act of asking for forgiveness in some ways for the some, somewhat tumultuous elements of their relationship. Uh both uh, Tim and John uh, succumbed to HIV AIDS related illnesses back in the early 90s. So the book is not only a testimony to their great love, it's also a testimony to those terrible early days of the the AIDS uh, pandemic in Australia. Uh, It's A wonderful love story. It's an incredibly detailed and fascinating act of remembrance as a memoir Uh, and it's a significant book for many, many Australians, uh, gay, straight and everything in between. Uh, It was turned into a stage play by Tommy Murphy, uh, commissioned in 2005 um, and that stage play within a year had an an additional three sold out seasons which is a sign of how much the the play resonated with people and now finally it is an Australian film as I said in cinemas today. So I'm going to play the interview that I've conducted with its director Neil Armfield best known as a director of theatre and opera and Tommy Murphy the screenwriter who as I said also adapted the memoir originally for the stage Um, the interview goes through about 20 minutes so, so, so I'm going to break it up with a track halfway through. But I began by asking Neil Armfield about how he wanted to make Holding the Man into a film when it was first published in 1995.
5: That's right, but the strange thing for me is that I'd completely forgotten uh, that this happened. Uh, yeah, I wanted to. Uh, Nick Enright was um, uh, the uh, sort of Tim's editor um, on uh, th- on the book of Holding the Man, and um, Nick was, of course, a playwright himself and had been an acting teacher and had taught Tim uh, at NIDA uh, some years before. Uh, but also recognised that Tim was a very special person and. Uh, Nick wrote uh, across the year that Tim was uh, Tim's last year when he was battling dementia and when um, uh, Nick was helping to edit uh, the book. Um, After Tim died, Nick wrote a screenplay himself, which I directed um, of a story about two boys in a Catholic um, school, which is, that's, you know, one of them's gay and one of them's not. Um... And, uh, but it was very much out of uh, the experience of working with Tim that Nick wrote that book and that was called Coral Island and I did a film for the ABC. Um, Nick then gave me the book to read and um, uh, I said, this is such a, was such a great book. I'd known Tim a little and um, uh, I said, I think there could be a great film here. Uh, I then... Um, found out that Tony Ayres, who was a, uh, a friend of, of Tim's had the, had the rights and was going, was writing a, a film script himself. And, uh, so I put it out of my mind and got on with my, uh, other activities. And, uh, then 18 years later, um, Tommy and Kylie Defrane from Goalpost, um, uh, contacted me and asked if I would, um, uh, like to direct the film. And, uh, I, uh knew the play very well because, in a sense, the uh, Tommy's play had sort of swept across Australia uh, at Belvoir. I would um, uh, had David Berthold's beautiful Griffin production um, uh, as part of our season, which I think was its third season in, in Sydney. And um, I'd sort of forgotten about that, you know, a, an idea of a film had ever been in my head and kind of then sort of afresh tackled, you know, what would be the the problems that we would have to uh, address in in you know trying to find a film in this in this uh, in this book? And it was only about uh, two months ago when Tommy and I were doing a Q and A in uh, in Perth, and I just had this sudden retrieved memory flash (laughs) that I I tried to get the rights myself. Well,
0: because I uh, first met Tony Ears in about 2000, 2001. He, He told me then that he was trying to crack the nut yeah. Uh, the narrative to create a screenplay and struggling with that. So, Tommy, let's talk to you about how you resolved some of the dramatic issues and dramatic structures in creating the screenplay. Obviously, back in 2005, David Bertot commissioned you to adapt the play for Griffin. So that presentation was is a, is in some ways a fairly straightforward chronological narrative. The film's narrative is not chronological at all. It jumps back and forwards through time. Was that, theatric, that kind of cinematic device of shifting uh, uh, time around one of the key components to making Holding the Man work as a film?
3: That was a solution. Uh, I think it was a, a fairly early impulse that we then returned to in how to structure this story. And certainly that playfulness with time, is something that didn't present itself as a solution in uh, the stage play. Um, But I think the notion, the ambition to, to make a film was there even in the adaptation for the stage in the scenes that I was discarding uh, from the play, and they were scenes that were at the heart of the book and felt central and sometimes were painful that they weren't finding their entrance on stage. And now when I look at Neil's film, they're the things that I find most beautiful, and they're things like the landscape, the the, the intimacy, the detail of a touch or a kiss, um, and, of course, the sex, um, something that, well, maybe there's a way of doing that theatrically, but it didn't present itself as a solution <laughs> in holding the man on stage. And uh, and sex is such an important uh, uh, part of this story, um, and it's something that the film had to do well, and I believe has done well. Do you think uh, heterosexual screenplay
0: writers and filmmakers would have handled the the sexuality and the me- even the
3: mechanics of the sexuality as as effectively as I think you guys have done? Because who knows? No, some some may have, but I like to think there's a certain expertise that and insight that uh, we brought to this and have done our research for me because there's a frankness to the film that i yeah. found
0: that is obviously connected to the frankness of the source material of yeah. them of um the memoir of holding the man but it's uh it's a uh, as a gay man it's so refreshing to have a gay film that acknowledges all the 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 shall we say the ins and outs
3: yeah, of, and uh, seen, of gay life and we've seen plenty of gay sex in cinema that doesn't get that right we've seen plenty of gay sex that looks to me like a very brutal shameful experience and uh there's something else at play in holding the man the film that is uh is tender and sometimes funny and silly um and uh and i guess heartbreaking as well
5: yeah, uh, look, I, you can't, it's impossible to, to say what another director, what another screenwriter might have done. Uh, but I, I certainly think that an awful lot of the conversations that Tommy and I had, and we had an awful lot of conversations where it were, were, uh, were speaking from our own experiences, uh, you know, our own experiences of coming out, of um, our experiences of gay sex, of, um, you know, any, any number of uh, a multitude of experiences that we've had um, as being young gay Australians. And, of course, people do that, readers do that, people
3: who see the film do that who aren't gay and they are able to find points of access to this story that uh, 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 because of its great... Um, Universality, um, uh, but um, uh, you know, um, I, I think at the same time the, the sort of um, uh, the 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 insight into um, uh, this. Um, intimacy, I guess, is the best way to describe it. It's hopefully,
5: something we've achieved. But that 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 idea that you get the detail right, and and it becomes that's what universality is kind of based on. Like it's it's that thing of um, you know we, we, if you try to be universal, then you that's the first way to fail. Um, Absolutely, it, it ends it's, up It's by being true to true to yourself, true to your detail, and 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 um, and who you are, and and what happens that is actually interesting for anyone who is maybe um, outside of that experience. It's dangerous. Just in a way
3: because the detail is so
5: seductive in Tim's writing it allows you to
3: project your own life onto it and it's dangerous I think in the adaptation to accidentally equate it with your experience but actually this is a very specific story uh, that you know took place at this prestigious high school here in Melbourne you know at a very particular time um, you have to make really good use of the detail Tim gives you.
0: I did want to ask about the, the risks of getting bogged down in detail and how difficult that was in the, in the, the process of writing the screenplay, the, the pre-production process and so on, rereading the book uh, just over the last few days. The, that degree of detail, references to necklaces, clothes, music, fashion, buildings that don't exist anymore, the Alan Sweet sign, for example. <laughs> yes. I, I wondered whether I was going to see a moment of CGI uh, before I saw the <laughs> we film. We talked about it. <laughs> yeah why was it a decision to to focus in on intimate character details deliberate as a way of saving money so that you didn't have to spend more money on on set and production and so forth or was it more just because well that is the heart of the story that should naturally be the
5: focus Uh, Look, it's uh, inevitably, I think the um, the heart for me, anyway, um, the the heart of the story that is the focus. Um, What the 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 sort of pleasure and the challenge of this was, uh, and of doing of of making a film really is is um, how intimate you can be and and where you can take the where you can take the camera. Um, We were. Uh, on a on a very tight budget, um, the and Joe Ford, the production designer, who has um, yeah, done made many uh, films about Melbourne and and using Melbourne as a location. Always said, yeah you know, the audience is going to be looking at those beautiful boys' faces they're not going to be worried about anything else <laughs> and you know and so and recognition of um, uh, of of you know how important the makeup was really um, and particularly in a story where someone is getting sicker and sicker that w- that's you know a telltale thing that can so easily kind of take you out of the uh, out of the film um it was uh, there were a few uh, moments where we were, and there is a little bit of CGI in the, in the film, but nothing nothing spectacular in a sense. It's about just uh, taking away some contemporary distractions and, and allowing us to project our memories of Melbourne onto, onto this space really. Tommy, when you were writing the some of the early stages of the screenplay, did you
0: imagine even then that uh, there would be just two actors playing the characters for the duration of the film? Were you imagining in your mind, or perhaps though, starting with kind of casting 14 15 year olds playing the original roles and then jumping forward in time
3: to then allow adult actors to step in tell us talk us through that process we're aware of those realities as we developed the screenplay and there were different versions of the draft that tried to structure it in a way to accommodate that like so trying to shift uh, events to allow a, a significant amount of time uh, a break in time so that you could change actor um, and that continued to even be something that was held as a possibility in casting uh, and something that you know so many options were uh, scrutinized as possibilities um but i think uh, the where we arrived at was where we probably were always going to arrive and that is that uh, one face one coupling is who you fall in love with and who carries you through the story yeah, to do otherwise, I imagine would have
0: risked uh, losing the audience identification with the figures they've grown to love. You're suddenly asking them to transfer that allegiance to a completely different set of characters. So even while they can say, "Oh, they're the same people," you somehow in your heart you feel that they're not, and that would have damaged the the, the narrative.
3: I think that's exactly. right. Exactly,
5: that, that, and that's the crucial thing, really. Uh, though I have to say that it was really up until the very last moments that we were we were still considering the possibility of um, of a change of actor. Even you know, and it wasn't. Uh, just that, you know, there would be a young John and a young Tim and an older John and, a, and an older Tim. It was, oh, is there a way of doing it with the same person playing John all the way through and a change of Tim? You know, and this was a response to people who, was, who we were seeing in screen tests, you know, every um, every option was was canvassed and, and thought about. Um, and, you know, I remember talking to a friend of Tim's who was, abs- when when I'd finally, you know, was getting closer to the idea that it would be the same actors all the way through. He, he just said, you can't do that. You just can't do that. <laughs> um, you, you, what was, what was incredible about what Tim and John did was the fact that they were, they were 16 when, when they began this relationship. And that, that is the most important thing in this story that, um, you know, that their, their age is, uh, is fundamental to their courage. Um, And yeah, that was, I was convinced by him for a while.
6: (laughs) Three triple
0: R. Now, uh, watching the film, uh, and I had the the pleasure of previewing it uh, uh, a couple of days ago, um, I was very, very delighted to see that it's not only a deeply moving film, it's very, very true to the book in that regard, but it is at times often a very funny film as well. Right. There's a lot of humour, a lot of of laughs, and then moments later wiping away tears and quietly sobbing in the cinema.
3: Um, (laughs) Trying to find that balance, I imagine, must have been something of a challenge, though. Neil was was so sure-footed. With this, I I um, didn't know how fun. You know, I mean, it, you learn so much when you hear the audience respond to it in the cinema, and they were very loud and laughed a lot and in places that took us by surprise. But the amount that they laughed did take me by surprise, Neil. I think you were always um, convinced that it was there.
5: Oh, I was so relieved when I you're heard relieved, that. Yeah, oh, it's interesting Christ, though, yeah. isn't
3: it? Because the thing though, and you were guiding us on this, Neil. Like there was, we were we had a policy of not making the humour. Um, I guess, too needy or too direct. And it is a relief to to hear the audience laugh at its, I guess, at its
5: its truthfulness. Well, it's also that Tim was a, you know, Tim had this incredible wit and an extraordinary sort of ability to see himself and to laugh at himself. Um, And it's, yeah, it's about kind of somehow um, someone said that directors are the great method actors. And um, you do do find yourself... um, kind of living and, and, and trying to somehow get inside the imagination of, of a character or of, uh, of, a, of a writer. And um, I kept on saying all the way through through the edit to various people who would come and see a cut who would be nervously saying, but we need jokes, we need jokes, and it's can, can, how can we make it funnier? Mm-hmm. And I would tend to say, uh, look, I think the sense of humour is there and there is something implicitly funny, sort of um, very alive un, you know, un, in inside this story and um, that was born out, you know, suddenly for the first time seeing it with 2,000 people watching and uh, going from, you know, big rolling laughs across that crowd uh, to hearing sort of sobbing, it was... Um, so satisfying
3: and gasps of outrage you know when a line of you know said in the 70s or uh, you know the sort of contemporary outrage that people that look they were a kind audience this may not be happening at uh, every cinema it will <laughs> it will yeah. we're talking to
0: neil armfield the director of the new australian film holding the man and tommy murphy who is the screenwriter and also its associate producer um, Obviously, one of the other things that is important about this is, as well as the laughter and the tears, it needs to be a passionate story because this is one of the great Australian love stories that has resonated with audiences around the world, both as a book and as a play as well, and now as a film. For me, um, that there is a beautiful cinematic moment which is so absolutely tender when the boys are kissing through a fly screen window. <laughs> um, and the way it's the way it's constructed and shot, it is very cinematic, but it felt to me very natural as well. And it's an opportunity for Tim to uh, to, to declare his love in a way that uh, uh, just he just he just blurts it out. Yeah. Um, uh, it made me think of Romeo and Juliet and the balcony scene. Good. Uh, we used to of, call it the,
5: the balcony yeah. scene, actually. <laughs>
0: it also made me think of, I think it's Pyramus and Fizz, Thys- in that's um, right i mean I drink. oh exactly <laughs> yeah. the i kiss the walls whole not your lips at all yeah <laughs> <laughs> so trying to again tell us about finding the w- the right way to present that kind th- those romantic elements so that they were natural and true and not cloying and not heavy-handed in the way that would would make the film un- an uncomfortable experience mm-hmm. rather than an engaged one
3: i think a version of that scene or that picture of them at the fly screen was in every draft I think that's true isn't it yes like going way way back I think that was always there as a kind of crystallised image or an emblem of the story that we were telling um and, you know, the other thing that I've really enjoyed about this process is that my collaborator Neil Armfield is an absolute enemy of sentimentality. Uh, I myself am probably not. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I loved having that scrutiny in the script
5: development on this because you're right. I mean, it could it was have, the words of Patrick White. He said, I, I once asked him, um, What's wrong with, with something being a bit sentimental? And he said, Sentimentality is the enemy of art. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Well, now you're
3: the enemy of sentimentality, and I think it's a great <laughs> thing. But you yeah, could have tipped into that. Um, and, uh, but, again, I think it's flavoured by Tim's character, and Tim is one to debunk. Tim is one to uh, make fun of himself, and uh, I think that's what's alive in the film.
5: The other thing on that that scene that you're talking about, you know, we were under the gun every day. It was, uh, you know, the making of a film is always a a pretty torturous um, process, really, um, because you have to try and get a a very calm atmosphere on set. You have to try and create a safe space in which actors can feel as if, you know, they have all the time in the world to to play their stuff and to find it. But at the same time, you know, you are there knowing that if you don't get this scene shot um we're going to lose you know one or two scenes by the end of the day and we were filming that scene at the end of the day and it was a day like every day where stuff had gone over and um we ended up doing that that scene in one shot um uh, and there's, it's you know, and it's it's an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinarily important scene because it's also the scene where Bob Callio comes in, and we've got the camera outside looking through the fly screen, um, very close at the boys. But um, uh, you know, we had to play the whole scene of um, of Bob's entry, doing perhaps you know his most important scene, Anthony Lapalio's most important scene in the film, in some ways, um, in one take and at a distance, in a in a you know. In a mid-to-long shot, really, and uh, we always. Uh, Anthony wrote to me after that uh, that day and and said, "I'm really, I'm really worried that we didn't um, uh, get that scene properly." And I said, "Look, I think that it could be an extraordinary scene to to play in um, one shot. Let's see." And we, in fact, did do. And th- it was one of those scenes that was put down for for doing pickups on. And I said, "I don't think we need to." Um, Pick up Anthony. I think what Anthony is doing is great. Uh, we did give ourselves an option of, uh, of one one cutaway, which we actually inserted later, which did help us to bring the timing of the scene down. But uh, the fundamentally, it is uh, it is one beautifully framed by Jermaine McMicking, the brilliant DOP, um, who had this way of just, and it was most. It was like working. He allowed me to work as I as I aspire to work in the theatre, which is that you, um, you you create a sort of a safe space and people are able to act, and he catches it. And um, you know, at some point during the process, we abandoned um, uh, doing storyboards and uh, and just uh, let the scenes flow. And 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 he worked so fast and with such an elegance of of, uh, of filming. Um, so that's what that's what happened with that scene. <laughs> Look, we're almost out of time, but I did just want to finally ask about
0: uh, uh, casting and working with uh, Ryan Corr and Craig Stott, who are the lead actors uh, in the film. Uh, without them and their chemistry, the film would
5: not work. So, what was We a- knew that so well, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: I kept on saying it. It was a long, fascinating one to watch. I mean, uh, there was... Uh, yeah, the figure is right. Is it close to 400? Is that right? And I- That's what Kylie Tufrena, our said said to me there's a number close to that in the search for tim and john and then trips uh, around the world to pair them together because they were working on uh, projects uh, overseas um uh, to test that dynamic um
5: on, on screen and yeah it was crucial to um uh to see them in playing scenes together um in in the testing process curiously i um um tommy reminded me of this this morning that um uh, the first green test i showed him was uh, at the beginning of this process of seeing whatever it is um some hundreds of people um the first test i showed him as uh, was ryan core and i said i think this could be tim and um we then went a long way away from ryan <laughs> before we came back to him and uh Craig, curiously, had sent me, um, had sent Nikki Barrett, the casting director, a test, a badly filmed test in LA, uh, which I I didn't, I thought was interesting, but I didn't, I didn't shortlist him. And uh, it was only through the happenstance of when I went to LA to test uh, Australian actors that someone said to me, have you seen this guy, Craig Stott? And um, I said, uh, no, and I'd forgotten about his screen test because it had been months before. And um, he said, well, he's got the eyelashes and he's a good actor and um, he looks Italian. Uh, And so I then tested him on my hours before I was getting on a plane to go, come back to Australia and I thought yeah he's really good and uh, then we brought him and Ryan together and uh, that that really worked. And paired with
3: Ryan I mean when you're watching the rushes you know the, the the footage from each day's shoot and you're looking at this scene that is scrambled and uh, you, you're trying to see how the story is charted in it and I remember watching them and it, we would go to the angle on Ryan core and you would think ah there's the scene, there's the heart of the scene and there's Tim Conagrave, or as close as we can get to him. He so quickly inhabited that complex, miraculous man, Tim Conagrave, with all of his wit and charm and flamboyance and brashness and
5: and sort of um, uh, self-awareness as well.
3: Holding the man
0: is uh, in cinemas from today. So uh, Neil Armfield Tommy Murphy, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks for Thanks having us, Richard. Three, triple R. Joe Lloyd joins me in the studio now, not to uh, talk about what else is going on in the world of dance, but specifically to talk about her own world and her own work. Confusion for Three is a new work Joe has choreographed, which opened last night at the Arts House in North Melbourne. Joe, good morning. Good morning, Richard. I'm glad you could join us fresh and early after uh, an opening night. I'd be a little bit hungover and weary, I suspect, were I in your shoes.
4: Yeah, I woke up that way and then I kind of pepped up soon enough but it's always good to chat to you so i wouldn't miss it well thanks
0: for making the trek across town so tell us a little bit about confusion for three which as the the title suggests um is a work featuring yourself and two other dancers um and it one of the things that struck me about it was how much space there is in the work it alternates moments of grappling intense physicality with really opening up the body and opening up the space in the room at uh, north melbourne town hall
4: yeah, I guess um, that reminds me of how we started, which was by finding uh, quite physical modes to behave in, and that's when I sort of recognised this confused physicality, and I transferred that to Rebecca Jensen and Sean Law, the other two performers, and I guess there was just this premise of delivering that information um in the central part of the the studio, and then stepping back when you weren't delivering that information. So, I guess from the very start, that space was set up of um, here's where we you know produce physical evidence, and here's where we step back and observe or wait until it's it's our turn. <laughs>
0: and it's fascinating to watch also because there's a real sense of being able. I guess, able to see the choreography and not in a way that suggests it's a, um, a poorly presented work, a, a too obvious work. But there are moments where you as the as both dancer and choreographer are pausing and whispering to your other performers as if giving them instructions. And for an audience member, there's a real sense that we are watching a work being made, even though it is a work being presented to us as well.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's one section that developed and it was purely um something we were doing in the studio to become quite familiar and uh with each other's vocabulary and it was it was something that I thought oh no this won't this won't happen in the work and then I thought well no something about the making of um and the revealing of the process is the piece and I I then allowed that in and I I kind of have a few times thought I can't believe I'm doing this but um, it's, there's something hypnotic about seeing that unfold and each night um, in that section it, it tends to kind of get corrupted just through confusion purely. And I, I was confused last night in that moment, which was quite um, thrilling. <laughs> so it, 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 the work sort of allows for this falling apart um, and this... Uh, sense of achieving something but not really achieving something.
0: (laughs) It's a difficult balancing act to maintain then uh, in terms of wanting to allow it to be ragged and loose and then wanting to make a tight, controlled, structured and finished work.
4: Yeah, I think um, I've been... uh you know finding tension in in the making of of this particularly the last few days because you kind of get that nervousness and you think oh we can pin this down we can order this we can structure this more but then I just don't feel comfortable with that because that wasn't the premise and that's not really the work I want to perform or see so much at the moment that's what my interest is somewhere else but there is that little um fogginess that can come in. And there's a difference, I think, between knowing where your attention is in those moments. And if you're still attempting certain thing and things and you're making choices and you're responding and you're very aware of the other performers' um, negotiations, then you're actually still actively involved, even though they become foggy. But if you drop out of it, then that's something else. That's when it gets lost. And that's when it truly um, could fall apart. But maybe that's not such a problem. I mean, I I often think, well, what's the worst that can happen? And I think of Philip Adams saying to me in in an interview once, um, the unshowable is worth showing, isn't it? And um, that always rings in my head and – um, that was a big big reminder through this process of making the piece Joe how long does it take to make a work like confusion for three talk us
0: through the development process and the the when the kernel of the idea was first formed to presenting the work last night at Arts house
4: well I th- Started uh, almost two years ago now, a residency at Lucy Gurren Inc. um, just in the studio. I think I did perhaps six, you know, three or four-hour sessions, some of them by myself. And then when I found a physicality that um, I thought was curious, um, which was just out of physical investigations at that time, you know, what my body had to say. And what what I found was this ridiculous um, vocabulary that has been the thread through the piece and then I shared it with Beck and Shan and um, from there we had a huge gap and I sourced more support. We had like a week development maybe six months later. Um, there was even a time when I was putting in an application and I had to pre- present uh footage of the work as support footage and I thought okay we've got to do a shoot so we did this kind of a bit of an artificial thing of like uh showing the work but it was it wasn't artificial really because we were in the studio doing the um movement and practicing so uh but it was just this strange thing of like having to show what the work might be even though we had never made it but in a way the premise from the very first few rehearsals was act as if you know what the work is. Like, let's, let's run the piece now. And we haven't actually made it. So to allow things to happen and then to dissect it and say what's in, what's out, what worked, what didn't. And then there was lots of sporadic rehearsals just because of people's um, other commitments. So over the sort of almost two years, I think if I added up all the hours we did, it wouldn't actually form many full-time weeks. Like it was It was a lot of in-between time, a lot of talking with um, Nicola Gunn, who worked as a dramaturg, and just... um sort of the whole two years it's been part of my thinking. But in the studio, maybe, I don't know, if I add it up, it might be four weeks max full time. So it's kind of strange, the process. But it it's very suitable and conducive to the piece, I think.
0: Now, it's a fascinating contrast to an earlier work of yours, Future Perfect, which had kind of really quite hypnotic movement. This is so much more... Uh, it, it feels you've moved much more towards the abstract here.
4: Yeah, I guess... Um, it, it came about and it occurred to me along the way that um, narrative has always been sort of there for me to check up on. And for this one, working with Nicola Gunn was actually a moment where, you know, she was sort of starting to seek out where the arc is or, you know, where's this going and where are you taking us and as a, as a viewer. And um, the lack of uh, narrative reference seemed to be a very big contrast with my previous works even going back to like uh my piece in 2008 apparently that's what happened there was always this um written source that i'd either write or bring in or have in my head about this um progression but um this one is much more um like revealing evidence of uh modes of behavior
0: yeah The other thing that's really fascinating about it for me was looking at how you use the space of North Melbourne Town Hall. So much of what I see in contemporary dance, particularly in Melbourne, uh, there's so much focus on costume and on design and on lighting. Uh, Often props are being used and so forth. Here, you've kind of stripped it back in a way, like quite literally in places, but also using the full space uh, of North Melbourne Town Hall. It's very, very starkly presented uh, instead of the so much of the room is flooded with light for much of the show. The soundtrack, uh, the composition is there, but uh, not dominating. So again, you've stripped out so many other aesthetic elements to focus on the body and focus on the movement.
4: Yeah, I think uh, it was a bit of a rebound effect from a 24-hour project I did back in 2013, where I just sort of had a bit of a shock and went oh I don't think this is what I want to be making and so stripping it back and then just allowing in what was really needed so it's like you know what do we need to do this piece Um, and could we do it um, in another town hall somewhere else and uh, that sense of abandoning you know here's one we prepared earlier you know I just wanted to have it a lot more um, instantaneous and um Yeah, it was just a desire of mine to strip it and it's so fascinating the the amount of work that goes into making it look like nothing has been prepared. Um, Yeah, Jen Hector's lighting and uh, just it's it's quite uh, a great task to try and pull off and the room just needs to be what it what it originally was, and that was our kind of concept of bringing back these old chandeliers that were the original light fittings of North Melbourne. You know, some of the people at Arts House that work there say, oh, I haven't seen the room like this before. So um, something about just stripping back and being quite honest with what, what we're dealing with yeah so by stripping
0: everything away does that mean this work uh confusion for three is more quintessentially joe lloyd than anything else you've made before
4: oh that's a scary thought but uh maybe i think i'm prone to being quite physically honest there's something about uh that that drives me so at the moment it feels quite clearly connected to um personal yeah it does Confusion for Three, choreographed
0: by Joe Lloyd, is now showing at Arts House North Melbourne Town Hall. It runs for an hour. It's on until this Sunday, the 30th of August, 7.30pm uh, tonight, Friday and Saturday, and then performances also at Saturday at 2pm and Sunday at 5pm. And if you head along tonight, there's uh, a Q&A with Joe after the show. Yes. So check that out as well. North Melbourne Town Hall is on the corner of Queens- Queensbury Street and Errol Street's north of Melbourne. You can book at artshouse.com.au or by calling 9322-3713. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Richard.
4: Triple R, not for everyone, for
6: anyone.
0: To Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, a new film which tells the story of... Uh, Greg Gaines, an awkward high school student, Greg spends most of his time remaking wacky versions of classic movies with his only friend, Earl. His well-meaning mother intervenes, forcing him to befriend Rachel, a classmate who's been diagnosed with leukaemia. The unlikely duo become inseparable friends as Greg discovers just how powerful and important true friendship can be. So if you want to win a double pass for the Triple R subscriber, screening of me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which is happening at 7pm sharp, on Tuesday, the 1st of September, at Cinnamon Over Carlton. Give the station a call at 11 a.m. today, 93881027. You must be a subscriber to be eligible, uh, which means if you subscribe during Radiothon, well, hey, you can already start to uh, get your money back from that subscription. Now, my next guests have joined me in the studio. They are artists and photographers Ben Wrigley and Amber McCaig. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us.
7: Thank you. So
0: you're in to chat about the Ballarat International Photo Biennale, which is on now uh, until the 20th of September in, unsurprisingly, Ballarat. So um, uh, you're both featured artists in the Biennale. What does that mean
6: exactly? Well, um, what that means is there's a core program of 21 photographers who have been selected uh, to... Really be, uh, demonstrate their work in a, in a very big way. So, there's a, I think there's seven um, galleries that are, are putting on the core program, and from the Mining Exchange to the Ballarat Art Gallery, where uh, my work is on, and where's your work on? Uh, St Amber?
7: Patrick's Community Hall. So, various venues around Ballarat and a sort of mix of Australian and international artists as well.
0: What's the... In terms of being invited to present work at the Biennale, Amber, tell us about what this opportunity means for you as a photographer and as an artist.
7: Well, I was invited um, because I won the Portfolio Review Prize at the Biennale in 2013. So I had an opportunity to submit uh, a new body of work. And... um, was lucky enough for Jeff Morfoot to uh, accept me as a as a core artist, so it actually means a uh, means a lot to to be a part of something like this, to be featured with with so many fabulous artists and international artists um, at this festival. And
0: uh, I guess Ben, the the same holds true for you. Well. I, In terms of the, uh, I guess, the, the opportunity to show your work as opposed to kind of uh, winning uh, at the, the Biennale uh,
6: two years ago? Well, I couldn't have done that because, <laughs> A, I wasn't there and, and Amber got that gig. Um, I was pulled out from... Um, I'm just really lucky. Uh, I'm just, it's such an honour to have been uh, brought up into the core program. Um, I've really just been doing work uh, quietly in the background and um, again Jeff Morfitt um, found out about me and, and pulled me in out of the cold.
0: Before we start to talk about your works individually I'm curious to know why photography is an art form what is it about this particular medium that has so fascinated you that, that you've made it such a central part of your artistic practices?
7: Oh boy.
0: After you oh. Amber. <laughs>
7: I think, I mean, I sort of like to dabble in a lot of things like writing, painting, um, and, but photography, I found it, you know, the best way for me to sort of, I guess, grab these sort of moments in time and, and put my imaginings and my thoughts down sort of instantly, you know, on, on paper. And uh, it was the easiest way for me to, to sort of yeah to show my thoughts. So,
6: and photography for me has been a, a, just a lifelong passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father t- took photographs for pleasure. Um, I was just always amazed by the colour of photographs as a child, and. I've just taken photographs. I had my first camera when I was thirteen. Mm, I mean, me. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it doesn't leave us it much choice, yeah, really. It's does just it?
7: kind of in you, isn't it? And yeah.
6: So it's more a vocation than a choice. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, completely, completely. And um, what comes to mind now is a Gore Vidal statement that um, that. Uh, photography is the is the artistic choice of the talentless, and, oh. and w- which is which is a really confronting statement. That's, but yeah. but if you go to go to Ballarat, um, what you'll oh find God, is yeah. that when you mix talent, like you do with any skill, when you mix talent, it just shines through. So it, um, while Gore Vidal sort of is trying to make a point, I think he's completely out of the ballpark um, because the poetry. In the language that photography offers, like the word has really dominated since, particularly since the printing press. And now with the advent of digital, the photography is as fantastic as the imagination can be. And if you look at people like uh, Jane Long's work, Mm. and she's just playing completely with the fantasy. She's taking old photographs from, I think it's Polish, of Polish photographs. Family album, Mm. and she is just adding fantasy willy nilly, and it's just stunningly beautiful work.
7: But Um, a a biennale like this, like a photography biennale, really does just such a broad range of work that you can see the quality of photography because people do still think photography is just that sort of lesser sort of art form, considered you know, compared to painting and and things like that. It's sort of you know, selling, trying to sell photographs and, and things like that, it's just not considered. And and that's where technology has has
0: come into play. Yeah. I think cheapened people's ideas yeah, so of what a photo of, of what photography is because any any idiot with a camera phone can take a photo. Yeah. But there's a, a big difference between me taking a snap yeah. on my iPhone and uh, you people as artists considering work, framing work, mm-hmm. printing work, the the way it's. Taken, formatted, presented, mm. is, uh, and the the art involved in doing that. Mm. Yeah. So, a
7: platform like the Ballarat Biennale is is something. A fantastic idea for people mm. to go along and, and see the quality of photography. Now, Amber, the work you're presenting
0: uh, at the uh, Biennale is uh, a photographic series called Americana Now. That's right, yes. So, this is an exploration of, of people's quirks
7: and how they acquire them. Yeah, um, it was, um, I've sort of been delving into nostalgia and why people uh, sort of cling on to, I guess, eras gone by, things that have gone. Um, and uh, I've been looking at people that love the 1950s, and at the moment I'm looking at people in in Melbourne, and yeah, I've been um, meeting some amazing people either in their home or I went to, took an outside studio as well, um, grabbing people uh, off the street and uh, just been <laughs> meeting some fantastic people, and they they it's just you know really trying to show people um uh, you know just uh, all the different sort of quirks, you know, people have. It's a uh, very interesting series. Yeah, it's I'm, been fun.
0: I'm intrigued just by the fact that the past is ephemeral and yet mm. here these people are living it and they you're do. documenting. They're their making permanent of something
7: ephemeral. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, they choose to kind of, I guess, create a, a better version of themselves. Um, you know, they do have this sort of everyday life, maybe an insurance officer or a Telstra complaints officer, but then they have this other life that they would prefer to live if they could. Um, you know, every day some do in Americana now, they live, like that all the time. Um, but then some go home and their, their life is like a whole 1950s collection inside their house. And no one would ever know. And uh, that's one thing that really surprised me. It's like, these are things that people would never know, like walking past someone on the street. And that's sort of what I'm trying to discover.
0: Yeah. And Ben, your work, uh, which we said is at the Art Gallery of Ballarat and the Selkirk Gallery, uh, Dream Machine is the title of it. And I think it will surprise people because it's much more than just uh, a photographic exhibition. There's installation aspects to it as well. Uh, it seems like quite a complex work. Tell us a little bit
6: more. Well, um, as I said the other night, that if you wanted to get inside my brain, just go along and, and stand in the Selkirk <laughs> room. It's, um, it's quite confusing. Uh, the The actual um, expertise in the photography is an attempt to photograph philosophy. So I'm drawing on the philosophy of Nietzsche's Eternal Return and also Proust. And Proust's uh, concepts are that... Uh, in the moment that the mind is confused, then there's an opportunity to expand a new, and create new consciousness and look at oneself in a different way. And so essentially the room is set up to confuse people. And I, I wake up in the morning, I go, what am I doing? You know, most people don't want to be put into a discomfort. But uh, that's, the pre- that's the first intention of my work. Um, and so there are three aspects to the work. Then uh, there's large murals which um, portray um, the anarchy and the rebellion of the youth within our, within our society. And there's uh, tattooing and uh, spray painting and burnouts and things like that. Uh, the next work is um, three uh, digital animations. So I'm playing with um, What's the Decisive Moment from Katia Bresson. And in that space, there's literally no decisive moment. Every image is actually magic. And so I'm I'm taking a one-second series of images and and expanding it to three minutes so that we can actually delve into each action. And, um, and, And their avarice, their desire... Their passion. So this is. These are the things. These are the false gods, I suppose, of the Western world: beauty, um, drugs, and also um, wealth. And so those those three images are for self reflection. And then the third work is uh, a reinvention of uh, a Dadalem machine, which was the first mechanical machine that uh, was really the instigation of the film industry. So, and I've reinvented this. I. And i spent three years uh, working out how to make this mechanical device. So, and in in contrast to that, there are QRs so that the social media, you can go into this exhibition and take away the animated sequences with you on your own devices. So I'm playing with 150 years of technology and and just the way that the person in the room is actually part of the work. It's just not... Uh, you know, it's not straightforward. It's not photograph on the wall. Um, To go into that room is to risk everything, I hope. And um,
0: I love the fact that the digital animations are making the permanent impermanent in a way, so you're reversing what photography traditionally does, which is to freeze a moment in time. You're kind of extending that moment and playing with time.
6: Yes, and so that the works can actually walk out of the art gallery. You know, they're not so precious that they can't be reproduced. At infinitum and, and almost spawn into the social world. Um, I, l- I like your point about impermanence. Um, something I wanted to do at the opening was actually bring in a few snails so that they could crawl up the posters and eat the work in the art gallery. So there's this play with the... Um, with the sanctity of the space, did the gallery let what you did do, they do that? Say? <laughs> well, I snuck, I snuck a container of snails in the day before, and took photographs of the snails on the work, and then I took them home because the snails needed to go back did to the lettuce. Did they creeping
7: lo- around the corner? To and the eating <laughs> someone yeah. else's work. I, I,
6: I counted them all. <laughs> I'm sure the gallery will be very <laughs> relieved be like- to hear that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, the Ballarat International Photo Biennale is on now until the 20th of September at numerous sites across Ballarat. And there's a, a broad and detailed program uh, which you can find out more info at Ballarat Photo. That's uh, photo, F O T O, ballaratphoto.org. Uh, ben and Amber, just quickly tell us are the, um, if you were recommending to friends or colleagues other works or other artists in the exhibition to explore, just off the top of your head, anything that else that springs to mind that people you think people
7: should know about? Yeah, there's a couple actually. Um, in St Patrick's Community Hall with me, there's, um, is it, Boriana Katsarova, who's got these fantastic images of faces behind these frozen ice windows, uh, which is fantastic. And there's also in the Mining Exchange, um, where was that one, Ben? Belinda Mason, um, which she explores sort of women and women uh, domestic violence yeah. in a really sensitive beautiful way i really recommend seeing that work yeah um,
6: pang zhanglang uh who has done photographs of the chinese oil wells in the in in freezing conditions mm. they're just astonishing documentation um, works uh, and also the uh, i want to mention the fringe because there's a, over 100 venues exhibiting Fringe Works, and uh, there's some stunning stuff. So you can have a, a coffee in most of them, I think. Yeah,
7: I think you can have a coffee and some lunch or a drink.
6: <laughs> and, en- or, and enjoy yeah, the exhibitions enjoy the, enjoy as well.
7: Very
0: yeah. civilised. Yes. <laughs> um, there's also workshops uh, such, uh, and I think... Uh, there's a workshop tomorrow and another workshop on Saturday Uh, there is a symposium that's happening uh, also on Saturday that's the uh, symposium Borderless Futures Reimagining the Citizen, Mm. there are uh, additional workshops, there's a film program and there's even a touring program as well for more information about the Ballarat International Photo Biennale ballaratphoto.org again that's photo F-O-T-O ballaratphoto.org on now until the 20th of September. Ben Wrigley and Amber McCabe. thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R.
3: Thank you very much.
7: Thank you.
0: Three
3: Triple R. Oh.
0: And my next guest joins me on the line from Lawn Arts Festival, the festival director Monique Harvey. Monique, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Now, your festival is running from this Friday, so I'm guessing it's Action Stations. <laughs>
8: It is, actually. Um, we also, well, we run workshops in the lead-up to the festival every year, so at the moment we've got about 200 school kids coming in every day doing workshops with um Dukimala from North East Arnhem Land, which have been going brilliantly, yeah.
0: A oh, lovely piece of uh, cross-cultural collaboration
8: then. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's really great. The kids are, are fantastic. You know, they're up there dancing, you know, with the guy completely uninhibited, and, yeah, it's it's, it's been really wonderful.
0: Now, the festival uh, in, as we said, is in Lawn and with a real focus on the performing arts um, and not just a focus on the performing arts, but putting performing arts in unique and unusual locations.
8: Yeah, that's right. Well, lawn is such a beautiful place, and we try to util- utilize you know a lot of the venues in town. Our main space is is actually uh, the Circus Oz foyer tent, uh, which is located at the front of Mantra on the foreshore, and then we use the Lawn Theatre. We'll have have uh, the Cartridge Family in there. We we use. Uh, the Lawn Hotel to, for brunch performances, a beautiful outlook to Lutet Bay, uh, the Grand Pacific Hotel Ballroom, the Aquatic Club, the Bowls Club. <laughs> yeah, so all over town. And, and the, the gorgeous Kiddos Arts Space.
0: Now, who are the the, the majority of uh, ticket buyers for the festival? Is it mainly Lawn Locals and other people from uh, from that area? Or are you attracting people from uh, from much wider
8: yeah, we are actually. So I think last year it was about 50% from Melbourne and then split between, the rest split between Surf Coast Shire and, local, and Lawn Locals. So we're reaching, you know, right up through Geelong, Birrigarra, Deans Marsh, Torquay, uh, yeah
0: so people coming from far and wide for a very strong program which amongst other people's features helpman award winner yana alana and it may be one of the last times people get the chance to see yana performing her helpman award-winning show
8: yes that's right yeah we're really excited to have have sarah down here with yana alana she's also emceeing the cabaret on friday night which is you know a big opening night event Uh, so she'll emcee that and then and perform between the cracks uh in the evening slot on saturday night which we're
0: really looking forward to. Now, I like the fact that the festival's definition of performance is so broad and so diverse. You've got everything from uh, cabaret and burlesque to to dance and and even magic.
8: We have Asher Trelevan and Gypsy Wood performing uh, Peter and Bambi Heaven's International Magical Variety Dance Hour, and that's a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of dance cabaret magic show. You know, Peter and Bambi are from the Gold Coast, and they've put together this, this uh, yeah, it's quite hilarious, actually, magic, sh- magic and dance show. Uh,
0: you've also got, uh, I guess, a... Not a reinvention of classic Bush poetry. Uh, I I wonder if our federal arts minister would approve. He seems to like his Bush poetry traditional rather Ah. than reinvented. But looking for Lawson is taking the, uh, the poems of Henry Lawson and setting them to music.
8: Yeah, wonderful legendary composer John Thorne um, has taken these, these poems and, and yeah adapted them to music and he performs those and there's, there's quite a bit of comedy in that as well with um, Emily Tahini from Mad As Hell on ABC TV and Lindsay Field so uh, that's another one that's selling quite well and that'll be up at QDOS Arts on, on the Saturday night
0: Now one of the other things that's been fascinating to watch uh, in the Australian performing arts landscape say over the last decade or so is just how strong circus has become as an art form and particularly as an art form that is so now constantly uh presented and often sometimes even central to festival programs and lawn arts festival is no exception
8: absolutely i mean we we have some some of the world's best circus performers coming out of australia and they're you know they're constantly touring the world and um and yeah, so we've we've always had a strong circus program. This year we've got mm, the Pitts family circus uh, and Judith Lanigan uh, performing her, her show Swanville. So, and we've got Tom Flanagan down as well. So, we it's not uh, we don't have as much circus in previous years, but we've, we've we definitely have have some great acts. The Pitts are, are wonderful. You know, they they perform with their two little kids, who I think are nine and four. Uh, so that's a great family show and lots of fun
0: and speaking of family shows you've also got uh, one of my favourite uh, comedy duos The Listies and their show The Listies Make You LOL.
8: oh their show is hilarious so I saw that when I think I was down at 10 days on the island and walked in the back of the Spiegel tent and there they were and I, I was hysterical and the kids were going absolutely yeah bonkers so um, it was, yeah we just thought let's get them down this year and they shoot toilet paper out of like bazookas and you know fart jokes and all of that stuff that kids love so (laughs) looking forward to that one
0: Monique how important is Lawn Arts Festival uh, to the local community and to the local economy as well because I would imagine that uh, the festival does have a significant economic impact on the town.
8: It does I think it's around three million dollars and over the weekend and um, yeah, a lot of out of town visitors come along. The, the local community totally embrace the festival, and I think you know, as I've said before, that that's a, a huge part of why it's why it's been successful. And we have all, you know all of our volunteers are local, and there's I think there's about thirty running venues and helping with the setup. Uh, yeah, they, they, and they really look after the artists when they're down here. So yeah, it's. It, it, it's, it's, it used to be quite fairly quiet at this time of year and that was the whole reason we started the festival was to get people down in the off-season and, and the festival's built and built over the years and I think this year we're, we're, we're hoping for around 4,000 people.
0: Fantastic. The Lawn Arts Festival is running from this Friday the 28th through until Sunday the 30th of August with an action-packed program. You can find full details at lawnartsfestival.com.au and for those of you thinking of making the trek down to Lawn, well, on the Great Ocean Road, not too far from Melbourne at all, so maybe uh, take a drive this Saturday morning and uh, embrace Lawn and all the performing arts it has to offer. Monique Harvey, many thanks for joining us here at Triple R.
8: Thanks so much, Richard. Three
3: triple
0: R. Oh. Smart Art is the programme. We're now going to find out uh, what a group called Field Theory up to. Joining me in the studio, co-director of Field Theory, Martin Coots. Martin, a very good morning to you. It's been a while. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very All well right. indeed. And artist Zoe Scolio, who is presenting a work as part of Sight is Set called Mass. Zoe, how's it going?
9: Hi, Richard. Good, thanks. Now, Martin, let's
0: start with you, perhaps of people who aren't familiar with Field Theory as a collective, um, beyond being a cross-disciplinary collective who often present work in unusual or site-specific locations. Tell us a little bit more about field theory. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, we're a collective of artists that came together in about 2009 and we were all making work that sort of didn't fit within the regular forms. So we were, some, you know, some of us are theatre artists, some of us are visual artists and we were kind of making work in unusual places with the public um, and those, those sorts of things. And we, um, we came together to not only make our own work but also support other people to make work. So something we did in the first couple of years was see that there was work that wasn't being supported by the regular funding bodies. And so we went about um, kind of creating our own funding body in a way. We, we made a um, crowdfunding model where and um, this was before Possible and a lot of those other um, more successful funding models have come about um, to support uh, four artists a year to make unusual work that couldn't be supported by by um other other organizations and and so we did that for you know the first year we did that we raised twenty thousand dollars and we gave that to the artists um to make the four works and then and then we did it again the next year and um and then recently, we applied to the Australia Council for a program um, to support twelve artists over three years. So, a similar sort of model, but this time it's actually being supported rather rather than regular people by um, the Australia Council itself. And we're into the second year of that. And uh, yeah, we give we give these artists the opportunity to make work, um, in really unusual spaces. So the, the brief for them is, you know, we really like your work and you work in the theater or you work in the gallery. Now, you know, what would it be to take that work into a really unusual space? And so, for example, um, in this year's program, we have a work that's happening in Eureka Tower. So someone's going to run from the bottom to the top and then um, give a PowerPoint presentation at the top of the Eureka Tower. Without collapsing and dying. <laughs> <laughs> he's very he's very fit. Matt Prest, he's from Sydney. He's a very, very fit guy. Um, obviously, Zoe's work, Mass, which is happening... At um, Calder Park Raceway. Yes.
0: Which is a fascinating... Uh, Location was uh, Zoe. Did you specifically say you wanted to present the work there, uh, or did uh, the, the Field Theory uh, Collective come to you and say? Here's a site we have in mind for you.
9: No, I um, I've passed Calder Park many times on my on my way to my parents' house in Castlemaine and on my way to Bendigo, and um, have never been inside, but have always been in awe of it. And I wanted to create a work that was a um sort of human-made geological site, and Calder Park with these sort of man-made mountains, this embankment of the Thunder Dome, and these palm trees, and um, sort of sitting on the fringes of suburbia. Um, it's a very evocative and great side. And of course, there's the car culture and this sort of um, community and sort of theatricality um, that sits within that, that I was also really interested in.
0: Look, I'm similar to you. Every time I drive past, I'm fascinated to know what is on the other side, what is within that kind of uh, great man-made embankment that uh, is hiding something from the rest of the world. It's Mm. quite a secret place in some ways. It
9: is. It's quite spectacular. It's a massive, sprawling site, and we're only using one section of it, um, which has... It's um, the motocross track, so we're not using any of the main tracks. It's um, on the edges, on this embankment, this um, sort of man-made hill um, with this um, obstacle course that's created and these big pylon towers. Um, it feels quite very post-apocalyptic. It's got a bit of a Mad Max feel. Um, that's
0: the Thunderdome. Yes, <laughs>
9: yeah, and it's um, yeah a very evocative sight, and um, yeah, looking forward to going there at um, twilight. Um, as the sun sets and it's sort of scheduled in for when the full moon rises as well. So hopefully if it's a clear night, um, it'll be quite a perfect setting to watch the moon rise.
0: So that's happening this Sunday night and I'll give the details of, of how you can book in, in a short time. But Martin, was it difficult for, uh, field theory to obtain, uh, the, the quarter park raceway site <laughs> for Zoe?
1: Well, that's a very good question, Richard. Um, a lot of a lot we've kind of bitten off a, a lot more than we can chew with this sort of thing because you know we you know we say to the artists well what do you want to do and they say things like we want to run up Eureka Tower and then we have to go okay well how do we actually do that how do we negotiate with these people and explain to them that we're making an art project and that it has value and that it, it will be good for them um, and so a lot of that is is about um, us negotiating that, you know, creating that administration to, to build to build those kind of relationships and then broker those sort of relationships and then, and then keep them afterwards as well. And so I think in, in the in the case of Mass, there was a lot of conversations very early on with Calder Park about, you know, just continuing to talk to them. And, I mean, Zoe can talk more about that. It's like continuing to talk more, t- more and more and more to them so they get more and more used to you and they go, OK, those guys are OK. They're all right. So you, uh, you have to convince them that you're not,
9: mad and that your work has merit. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've convinced them yet, hopefully (laughs) by the end of this. Um, But it's been great. We've been doing lots of site visits and they've been really helpful and great um, um, to the site. And I've sort of gone along to some of the drift events that they hold there on weekends and um, sort of started to familiarise myself with some of the different car events that happen um, on site. Um, Originally, I wanted to maybe do a work in a construction site or an open-cut mine or another type of site that was um, in transformation and had sort of this human and geological components, but figured for now that was maybe a task a bit too difficult to um, begin on and best to start with a a site that already has a higher agreement policy.
0: And that you have easy easier access to than say the uh, your lawn open cut coal mine exactly, for example yes. now one of the things that intrigues me about mass as a work is that it's ex- in terms of its artistic themes, it's exploring um, the human impact on the environment uh, and so referencing climate change and the uh, the humanity's pollution of the atmosphere and the environment, using cars as both a vehicle to explore that and a vehicle to transport your audiences within.
9: Yeah, it's sort of, um, there's lots of layers, but it's looking at our implication in our actions um, into this proposed era epoch of the Anthropocene, this epoch where human activity is influencing the geology of the earth um, on a geological time frame and sort of trying to understand this impact and um, beyond our human existence, sort of trying to understand geological time and deep space as well to begin to think about those notions and those impacts. So it's, I guess for me, I'm really interested in the human and the geological relationships, this idea that we come from the earth and we have the same minerals um, in our bodies and elements in our bodies as the geological world and sort of drawing it right back to the proposed Big Bang story for example and looking at um, analogies with rotations of planets, rotations of cars and rotations and revolutions of people and the way we think um, about the world and our place within it.
10: If
0: you would like to attend this work mass, then uh, you are encouraged to round up friends, neighbours and even strangers. There is a carpooling system available and pack your car to its maximum capacity to make sure that uh, As many people as possible can experience it within your vehicle. Uh, You do need to make sure that your car has a functioning radio. However, you can find out more information at fieldtheory.com.au. And Mass is happening at the Calder Park Raceway this Sunday, the 30th of August, 5pm for a 5.30 start. Runs for 120 minutes. You do need to book. So fieldtheory.com.au. A.U. That's one of the works happening as part of Sight Is Set. We've already heard about the work that's happening uh, at the Eureka Tower. Martin, I think I should get you to tell us quickly about the other two works, which I believe are happening at a suburban dance competition and in a (laughs) private home.
1: Yeah, so we've got um, Mish Grigor, who is um, one third of performance company post um and she's presenting a, a work in a yeah in a suburban home basically um and uh that'll be very very funny and also it's it's a it's about a, a yeah, it's it, called it's called it, the talk. The
0: talk, as in, I think, darling, it's time you had the talk with uh, kind of yes. little Johnny or young Joanne.
1: Yes, or- it's about having the sex talk, basically, with your with with your family, and so it'll be very very funny. And the other work um, is Jackson Castiglione's Rainbow Leprechaun, which um, yes, will be ha- will be an intervention into a suburban dance competition. We can't kind of give more away than that because you know it it, it does rely on a little bit of secrecy, so um, you'll have to book. For very quickly for that one that one's filling up very fast and also matt
0: Prests running up a skyscraper as we've mentioned so for details about these events and ticket information www.fieldtheory.com.au site is set for performances in quite extraordinary sites. the sheer notion of just getting inside Calder park raceway yeah it fascinates me enormously so uh, i hope it's a huge success Thank you. Uh, Zoe and Martin, thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple
1: R. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
0: Something else that's on tomorrow is the opening night of Law, the latest production from Bangara, uh, Bangara Dance Theatre, who are based in Sydney. They're a, a flagship company uh, presenting um, Indigenous culture in contemporary forms. Uh, every year, I never fail to be enthralled by the work that Bangara have presented. Joining me in the studio is choreographer Francis Rings, uh, whose work She-Oak makes up part of the Law double bill. Francis, good morning to you.
10: Morning, hey. Richard.
0: So, uh, you're Adelaide born originally and now based in Sydney with Bangara. How long have you been with the company?
10: Uh- Oh, it's been a long time. My association has been, uh, I believe, 23 years. Um, I had joined post-graduating from Naizda Dance College um, and spent 12 years with the da- with the company as a dancer and then transitioned into choreography, um, which was very fortunate because um, dancers have a very short uh, lifespan in terms of career and um not everyone is, uh, you know, can venture on to stay involved so, um, uh, you know, intimately with, with the with the uh, the art form and, um, you know, often the dancers go back to community or go into teaching or, um, but yeah, I've been lucky to stay very close with the company. So, yeah, I'm artist in residence at Bangara um, and, um, yeah, creating my... Seventh work with Bangarra.
0: Now, your first work was uh, with the company back, was back in two thousand and two. So, you've had plenty of time to, I guess, finesse your your choreographic language. Talk to us about how you make work, and and for people who haven't seen your work before, what that work looks like.
10: Um, Okay, so uh, choreography is um, well for me. It's I really view it uh, through the, um, I guess, the lens of my Indigenous background, and um, it really is the connection that uh, that we have to not only um, to the natural world and to our country and. Um, to our culture, but but also to the unseen and what how we uh, connect with with the world, and it's the the physical and the spiritual coming together. So um, yeah, it's always the exploration for me physically to embody that um, a relationship with the unseen and to bring that to the stage and to get I, I guess share with audiences and um, the community about uh, Indigenous issues and about uh, what's currently facing. It's honouring our past, but also it's about um, where we are today, contemporary Indigenous Australia and the issues that we face. So, you know, I feel like as an artist and most artists would agree is that we always, I guess, um, want to... uh, uh, with our process, feel like we grow and feel like we evolve and we continue to learn. So I've just recently come back from Canada having fantastic dialogue with First Nations Aboriginal people um, in Toronto and I feel like I've started at the beginning of my career again and I want to learn all new forms. So, yeah, at a little bit of a crossroads at the moment.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, She-Oak is uh, the title of the work, obviously comes from... Uh, uh, a particular type of tree, which is uh, so not only is it referencing uh, a physical aspect of the landscape, something that grows Mm -hmm. and something that grows and changes over time, but uh, a she-oak provides shelter. It provides kind of uh, wood and branches. Um, It has a, uh, in in some cultures, a spiritual uh, aspect as well. There are so many references that just the title alone is evoking. Yeah,
10: so and that's yeah. Thanks for bringing that up because it's not not always uh, people. People think, oh, it's about the tree, but you know, there's so much more as you say, and you know, it's significant for a multitude of reasons, um, which is why I chose it, and and it's been witnessed to our indigenous experiences since first contact, and I think that for us symbolically it represents um, the resilience of our um, of our culture of our people, and um, and it as it continues to stand, so do we, and so do we face the challenges of what um, uh, of you know know, um, living a contemporary life and obviously, you know, uh, being uh, connected with our birthright as Indigenous people, where do we go forward and how do we um, culturally uh, carry What's been gifted to us from our our parents and our uh, forefathers and mothers, and um, taking that forward, the preservation, the cultural obligation, and the maintenance of of that, and ensuring that it's it's stays relevant and um, and you know present for future generations, you know.
0: Francis, talk to us about choreographing uh, Sherk on the the dances of Bangara. You're obviously very familiar with the the members of the company. Mm. You know their their styles, their skills, their their abilities, and so forth. Talk to us about um, making the work on them and how they then bring it to life.
10: Yeah, it's really exciting at the moment in the company because we have a whole new fresh batch of dancers and, um, you know, it's they're coming out and they're confident and they're, they, they've they got so many skills and they're global and they have access to so much information and fantastic training. And um, so, it, yeah, it's a really exciting direction that the company's heading. Um, you know, it's I think when you see these dancers and when I feel like, oh, my God, I want to get on stage and dance next to them, like that's going to be like, a good thing. Um, but yeah, really exciting. You know, they're they're open to um, not only to uh, the legacy of Bangarra and obviously what Stephen Page, our renowned director is known for and what he's passed on and, um, but also about what is our new language, what is, how, how are we going to share this new direction of Indigenous movement vocabulary and what's that going to be and so they invest in that, and I think it's you know it's just going to you know it's just going to grow even more. You know, it's twenty six years. Um, we had our uh, community night last night, and there was a there was people from all over Australia. You know, Indigenous people, and I think that. You know, especially with this work, it's two different stories. They're contrasting and, you know, it's, uh, you know, some might think of it's, it's a bit of an odd program, but but it actually works because one is very celebratory. Anyone that knows Torres Strait Islander culture knows the, the power and the um, the, the proudness that they have in their culture and the celebratory aspect. and it's all about music and rhythm and um and celebrating you know the 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 islands. But also, you know there there's some serious issues facing the Torres Strait Islands with ri- rising sea levels and changing temp, um, you know sea temperatures and you know overfishing and you know lots of lots of things. but you know they they put it into such a wonderfully positive um, you know message. Now this is um, the first half of the double bill of law, uh, which correct. is called this is ibis. Now, IBIS. I, was, I was going to ask is it is it actually called
0: ibis or is it called ibis? So it's, ibis. Um, we
10: call it ibis, but it is it's actually a acronym for um, the. Let me let me try and get this right. The Islander Board of industrial services which is basically the supermarket up there and it's a it's a meeting place it's where community members come they gather they talk about things they talk about the catch they talk about what's happening you know the you know if there's been boat people or if there's been you know um the ghost nets and you know all of those issues and um a wonderful collection of characters and you know you go to the freezer and you open it up and there's crayfish and there's turtle and there's all the catch of the day and um, I think that, you know, that wonderful seafaring Past and, um, you know, uh, uh, of th- that part of their culture is very strong and that relationship to the ocean and the sea they know so intimately. And, um, yeah, so it's it's a fantastic program. And, of course, choreographed by uh, principal dancers with Bangara, Waniga Blanco and Deborah Brown. So exciting to see them get up and do, you know, their first main stage work, which, you know, wasn't so long ago when I was in their position and... Um, you know, had my first work very uh, overwhelming. Yeah,
0: I'm looking forward to seeing it. I have to say, Bangara's Law, uh, which is spelled L-O-R-E, just in case you were wondering, <laughs> uh, is on uh, at Arts Centre Melbourne in the Playhouse. Uh, on previewing tonight and then opening tomorrow night and running through until the 5th of September. You can find more details at artscentremelbourne.com.au or bangara.com.au Francis, as I said at the start of uh, or earlier in the interview, Bangara is a company who never um, ceased to inspire me and move me often as well. The the fusion of um, 60,000 years of, of Indigenous culture and history um, with contemporary dance forms and the way that is brought to life, maintaining a tradition while evolving a tradition at the same time is a fascinating thing to see. Absolutely, yeah. Bangara is one of the Australian major performing arts group who have been insulated from cuts uh, made to the Australia Council by Senator Brandis. Are you worried about the the, the careers of? younger uh, Indigenous dancers, perhaps in independent companies, or who may be independent choreograph- choreographers themselves, given that they may be losing funding, something like 30% of companies may lose funding in the coming
3: year.
10: Yeah, absolutely. It's a major concerns. Absolutely. Um, you know, we try. We stand strong as a community. It's a very small sector. And um, as an industry, we know that, you know, you take away something, Some. you know, somewhere along the chain, it's going to have an effect. It's going to have a ripple effect. It will will resound throughout the industry. And, um, you know, but we do what we do. We're artists, you know, whether we get paid or not, we're still going to create and, you know, we survive. And as Indigenous people, you know, that's just part of our, you know, DNA. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, but there is concerns all around. Um, I think one way in which... Uh, the companies can help is to, you know, for those independents out there is to offer support, offer access to resources, space, you know, in-kind services. I think that we need to think that we are more uh, along the lines of a community and where you can help nurture those that are less fortunate. And, um, you know, the thing is, is that it's become so competitive and it's become so separated in our own little bubbles. And I think we can start to just let go a little bit more and connect with the other members of our community and, you know... I think that sometimes we get a little bit elitist in the arts and we need to just remember that the reason why we create, the reason why it's so important that this is used as a vehicle for a message, a political message, a social message, a cultural message. But let's just remember that, you know, the arts is here um, as the authentic voice of the people. So, you know, I hope that as a, that we look at ourselves and we take it inward Look and uh, at how we can best support those around us, and um, you know, all we can do is kind of, uh, I guess as an industry stay strong yeah yeah if you want to see
0: bangara's law and i highly recommend that you do uh on from tonight until the 5th of september at the plate arts center melbourne you can book at arts and you can find out more information about the work and the company at bangara bangarr au. i've been chatting with choreographer francis rings it's been a pleasure having you in the studio
10: thank you richard <laughs>
0: 3 triple r oh. Talk about West Island, Uh, a show called *The Weir* by Irish playwright Conor McPherson is on now. It's a Melbourne Theatre Company production, uh, and uh, you can see it uh, in the Fairfax Studio at Arts Centre Melbourne until Saturday, the twenty-sixth of September. Joining us in the studio to tell us all about the production, it's director Sam Strong, who's the associate artistic director of the MTC, and actor Nadine Garner. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Very great pleasure. So. Sam, I'm going to start with you. Um, This is a play from 1997, so it's taken quite a while to reach the MTC stage. Why the delay, do you think?
11: Yeah, I I mean, I think one of the reasons for that, actually, is that there was an original touring production. Uh, The play was a smash hit uh, when it was originally on uh, the Royal Court and then sort of transferred to the West End and then uh, around the world. And it came pretty much everywhere else in Australia except Melbourne. Uh, you know, Sydney, other, I think it was part of the Sydney Festival uh, in the early noughties. Uh, and so Melbourne audiences had never really had the chance to experience um, what I think is one of the most beautiful plays uh, of the last 20 years, if not the last 50 years. So I, it's always been on my sort of bucket list of plays uh, to direct. Uh, so I was really thrilled to get the chance to um, uh, to bring it, to bring it to Melbourne audiences because they haven't actually had, they've seen other examples
0: of, of uh, Conor McPherson's work uh, but haven't yet seen The Weir. Okay, um, Nadine, were you familiar with the play before you were cast in it? Had you seen that touring production, for example, or seen no, a, a production?
12: I I hadn't seen it. I knew that people knew of it, and there was a bit of a buzz about the piece. And I didn't. I, I took it at first value. I received it from Sam and read it, and went, "Oh, oh, that's." I don't know if I can do that. It's um, it's a big. That's a big piece. It takes it takes the the actor to a, a very um, deep and raw place and I was a little bit frightened of that to be honest um, so yeah it was it was a revelation for me to read it um, and I thought it was a big task for, for Sam to bring it to, to life on a stage because of it, the, the dense language or the amount of just verbal stuff that happens and, and not a lot of plot and not a lot of action it's very demanding from a directorial point of view I would have thought.
0: And that's one of the intriguing things that struck me watching it uh, and certainly having read a little bit more about it um, over, over the last week or so. The fact that it's it's really it's a series of monologues linked by some, some dialogue and some character interaction, but the heart of the play is this series of monologues on classically Irish themes of the supernatural.
11: Absolutely, and I think it, the supernatural is a really big part of Conor McPherson's uh, body of work, and I, I used to describe the starting point of the play as kind of as simple as an Irish joke uh, in that you literally have a bunch of uh, regular guys in their regular Irish pub uh, on what is for all intents and purposes a regular night um, but they're interrupted by the arrival of, of a woman from Dublin. Uh, and the play plays out in real time from that beautifully simple conceit. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's made up uh, in, in, in large part of uh, what we didn't refer to as monologues uh, because uh, monologues, in, 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 traditionally you're talking to the audience, so we used to call them stories um, because their stories are told to the other characters on stage uh, and told for a very particular purpose. But they are... Uh, it does... Contain very long form uh, stories, uh, ghost stories initially, but they're all quite distinct in in their style. But it is a, it is a, a quite a significant challenge for the for the actors, and I was really thrilled to have uh, the cast that I that I had, and that uh, my recruiting mission with Nadine uh, was a success, mm-hmm. uh, and that she, that she came on board uh, to to do to do the weird because it is it is a really beautiful challenge for actors to, to work with that degree of sort of detail and naturalism but to carry those 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 longer
0: stories as well nadine had you had to do uh, um, an irish accent before in your career
12: i don't think so only in private <laughs> <laughs> i've we come to realize private, though, that it <laughs> was vast <laughs> you know, <laughs> i don't think yeah, that's right <laughs> Yeah No. Um, there was nice to have to learn. It's always nice to learn an accent, I think. I think it helps um, trigger character in a way, a bit like putting on a false nose or a wig. It's a nice little entry point for an actor. It gives you a little tool, a little clue. Um, so I always like extra stuff that I have to take on.
0: Which is technically more demanding learning an accent uh, like this for the duration of the play or the emotional places that the play takes you as an actor?
12: Mm. It's interesting because there's a bit of... It pushes and pulls you, the accent and the emotional thing. I find that, for me, playing the role of Valerie, which is about her sort of bearing something very painful, um, that I, I have to be very mindful of the accent when I go into the emotional body of the piece because I just drop into that as a human. And so the technician in me has to keep tethered to the job of... Presenting an appropriate sound in my mouth. Um, And so I I do find that I have to be very aware of what what I'm doing in that state because sometimes when we're in a very heightened state of emotion we tend to drop everything else because we're just completely present to that feeling so I'm finding it um, challenging to honour the, the truth of that emotion and also honour the technical side of pr- producing the right sound so I every night go out there trying to keep the scales evenly balanced and it's quite a task yeah.
0: and uh, I guess the task for the other actors is to maintain their own accents rather than kind of because I know if you hang around people speaking in accents for a while you sooner or later you end up picking up some of their accent you echo it and reflect it in whether deliberately or 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 unconsciously and so Sam given that this play is set in the northwest of Ireland in remote regional Ireland where there is a very specific accent as opposed to the the Dublin accent that Nadine's character is doing that's another challenge for the actors.
11: Absolutely that was a really important part of uh, the approach to the play and that I wanted to work with that level of specificity in the accent. I think it's important in, Nadine, in Nadine's character being an outsider. Uh, so we were lucky enough to have a wonderful um, voice and dialect coach and assistant director Leith McPherson on the show uh, who works the cast uh, extraordinarily hard uh, in terms of those differences and as you, as you mentioned Richard it is really hard uh, particularly um, for someone like Greg uh, Stone who'd recently been in a Dublin accent um, for once uh, to not only kind of reprogram himself into a sort of Sligo accent uh, but then to not get uh, kind of Infected by uh, Nadine's Dublin accent, uh, it is quite. It is, and then make all of that look effortless and natural, uh, and authentic uh, and invisible is quite a challenge.
0: Now, another challenge is the play itself because it's a fascinating balance of naturalism and the supernatural. And you've mentioned already, uh, Sam, that the supernatural elements are, are regular aspects of Connor McPherson's work, the playwright's work. But um, we don't uh, see that much on certainly on our main stages, or even in on, in the Melbourne Independent Theatre. We don't see that. that that merging and, and melding of the natural and the supernatural hand in hand. A- absolutely, and I think uh, the
11: term that I used was actually supernaturalism, which which refers, of course, both to the um, the yeah. hypernaturalism of the of the style of performance, but also to the fact that it does uh, deal with uh, the supernatural. I think what's interesting about the Weir, as opposed to uh, Conor McPherson's later body of work, in the, in that uh, in plays like *Shining City*, uh, for example, the supernatural actually appears on stage, uh, whereas in the Weir, it's conjured. Um, some very very vivid ghost stories uh, are told. I got ch- uh, I
0: got. Ch- genuine prickles at the back oh, of my face right, so. right well that, that,
11: that's that's in a sense that we're doing our we're doing our job uh i think but we we messed around with a version of the play in a preview and only, it only saw one preview uh where there was a there was a, a, a sort of statement towards the end that um could have been read as supernatural but also could have been read as quite literal and 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 uh, real world uh but we ended up taking it out because it sort of disrupted the
0: delicacy uh of of the piece A question for both of you. What would you say the theme of the play is? Uh, Because at its heart, one of the readings of it for me is certainly um, the battle in Ireland between uh, tradition and the future. And this was written at a time when Ireland was still the Celtic tiger. So that certainly Mm. seems to be one of the connecting threads in the work. But how, how have you both read it?
12: I think it is a lot about um, tradition in Ireland and what the, the Irish are very bound to their tradition and their ancestry and this sense of um, fairy folk and, and all the mythology that has gone along with that that um, that culture. But I also think it's a bro- more broadly about um, living and dying. I think it's about um, how painful life is and how much life is full of loss. Um, and I think those themes... Probably percolate through on reflection, really, for an audience that they go away going, oh, so she said that, and then he said that, and that's really all about what really we're all talking about is passing on. Um, and you know, at the end, the uh, the last image really is the a spotlight on Maura Nealand's chair, where you know the old woman used to sit and drink, and now now no longer does. And I, I think it is just about life being a sort of passing. Thing that, that comes and goes and that we're very lucky to walk within um, as long, for as long as we can and as safely as we can. So I think it's quite a philosophical piece. I don't think it's deeply um, political. I think that it touches on Ireland as a culture and um, the ma- massive brain drain across to America or whatever that that, that country always had to endure. But I think it's probably tackling something a little more deep and broad than that.
11: And I think my, my two cents worth on that would be exact, to echo exactly what Nadine said, but um, also I think what attracted me to the play is that I think it's almost Chekhovian in the way that it explores that gap between uh, mm-hmm. the person mm. we are or the person we've found ourselves becoming uh, and the person we kind of wished we were. Uh, so, you know, it, it deals with, with that very human experience that, that is, um, obviously it's a specific Irish example of that, but I think that that's a, a fundamentally uh, and timelessly human experience.
0: The play is The Weir, a Melbourne Theatre Company production uh, by Irish playwright Conor McPherson. Uh, it is on at Arts Centre Melbourne in the Fairfax studio on now until Saturday the 26th of September. Tickets from 73 bucks or uh, $36, uh, or from 36 bucks if you're under 30. You can book at Southbank uh, Theatre Box Office, which is 8688-0800 or mtc.com.au, or you can call Arts Centre Melbourne on 1300 182 183, or visit... Visit artscentremelbourne.com.au for more information about The Weir, directed by Sam Strong and starring a strong cast, including Nadine Garner. Thank you both.
12: Thanks, Richard. For being my guest. Thanks for me. having us.
4: Pleasure. Triple R, not for everyone, for
12: anyone.
0: Now, it's uh, pretty much time for me to squeeze out of the studio, Uh, but before I do, I want to thank all of the guests on the show today, and just a reminder that if you're interested in checking out the photo biennale that we were talking about earlier in the day, the Ballarat International Photo Biennale, you can go to ballaratphoto.org. There's also an app that you can uh, download uh, and add to your phone, which will give you all the details you need to know about the many artists involved um, it's a two dollar gold coin donation i believe the donation will uh, go somewhere uh, charitable so do check that out if you're interested in checking out the festival um, and as i said big thanks to all of my guests this morning
1: this has been a podcast from 3 triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au